We're starting something new this Sunday. I'm excited about it. I, at the beginning of the year, I kind of targeted this time of the year to do this series. Um, it, but really, it's, it's a sermon series that's 500 years in the making, if you put a timeline on it. Uh, October 31st, 1517, almost exactly 500 years ago, a hammer, a couple nails, and a piece of paper nailed to a door, Changed the world forever. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Sparked a revolution that's led to you being here today. It's led to this church being here today. 1934, not so many years ago, there was a a young African-American pastor from Georgia who took a trip. Trip of a lifetime. Got on a boat, uh, sailed to the Holy Land, toured Israel, saw all those important sites. On his way back, made a stop in Germany where he took in some more sites. And what he saw and what he heard there so impacted him that the first thing that Michael King, this pastor, did when he got back to the United States was to legally change his name to Martin Luther King. And the next thing he did is he changed his five-year-old son's name to Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe you heard of him. So impacted was he by what he uh, heard and saw in Germany that he changed his name to honor this man and the ideas he represented. His name was Martin Luther. You heard of him? Some of you, some of you will have some. You, ah, maybe I've heard of that name. I don't really know anything about him. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, was a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, was really the only church that existed back in Europe 500 years ago. And at that time, uh, in, in Europe, uh, the, the Catholic Church, it was a big deal at that time. They were selling indulgences. Indulgences. What's an indulgence? An indulgent, well, well the, the church really came up with this great fundraising idea. They thought, why don't we, as a way of filling our coffers, why don't we sell God's favor? We will offer dispensations of God's grace and acceptance to those who will pay for it. And by paying for it, the, 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 the church will give people the forgiveness of God. Uh, they, can, they can buy forgiveness. They can buy salvation. They can earn God's favor in this way. Not only for themselves, but many people, they had an Aunt Edna who had already passed on and they must have really loved Aunt Edna and they didn't want her to be in purgatory any longer than she had to be in purgatory. And so they would give the church money and, and, and that would lead to Aunt Edna getting out of purgatory a little bit quicker, right? Some of her sins being paid for in that way. And of course, I, well, I floated the idea to the finance board in the church and... Uh, But if any of you want that, you can see me afterwards. I'm <laughs> that really troubled Martin Luther. Um, in, in fact, uh, the, the saying at the time was this. When a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You do this, and God will do that. That troubled him. So he studied his Bible, and as he studied his Bible, that whole concept troubled him even more. And as he studied his Bible more and more, he dis- what he discovered there radically changed his life. Not only his life, it radically changed the world and it's radically changing lives today. It so convicted him what he learned that on October 31st, 1517, he went up to the big wooden door at the front of the Wittenberg Church in Germany 
and with a hammer nails, he nailed onto that door a document that contained Luther's 95 theses. I, in the first service, someone thought I said feces. It wasn't feces. It, <laughs> 95 theses, which is a plural for thesis. Essentially, it was his argument for why this whole concept of buying favor, earning favor from God, um, was wrong. Uh, and, and so that act, and he had no idea what that was gonna lead to. What it did is it sparked what we now know as the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the word Reformation is a bit of a misnomer even because it wasn't so much about changing something, which is what to reform means. It was really a restoration. It was a returning to the truth, the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Luther rediscovered this gospel. It changed his life. Uh, It changed lives 2,000 years ago when it was first declared it, was, it changed lives again in Luther's day and it's changing lives today um, here and around the world. And it'll change your life too if you believe it and receive it. Uh, th- because there's really no more important question in all the world. There are a lot of por- important questions but no in question mo- as important as this. How do I have right relationship with God? How can I be reconciled, be in the favor of of God. I mean, that is the biggest question that man can ask and seek an answer for. It's a question that in the scriptures was asked in a few different forms. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Which is one way of saying, how can I know that I have right relationship with God? Someone else asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's really the same question. How can I relate to God and be in his favor? The answer to that question uh, became summarized during the time of the Reformation in a statement that became known as the five solas. Anyone know Latin? Any, any, anyone know what sola means? Take a stab at it. Only, only right? Kind of like solo, sola. It means only. And so the, 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 the truth that was rediscovered in the, in the time of the Reformation became summarized in this statement that had five Onlys, five solas, and this is it. Salvation, or to be reconciled, to have right relationship with God, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. That's summarized um, all the, what was discovered, that truth of the Reformation. Um, it uncovers the heart of the gospel, the Christian faith, these five solas alone illuminate what it means to be a Christian. So over these five weeks, we're gonna go through these five solas, and I want to encourage you, I can't force you to be here all five weeks. If I could, I would. I can't. But I want to encourage you strongly, as much as you're able to be here these five weeks, because this is the most important foundational stuff that will give us that answer that we need to have more than any other How do I know that I'm in right relationship with God? Over these five weeks, um, 
if, if, if you're new to the faith or you're curious about the faith or you're exploring Christianity or maybe you're skeptical about Christianity but, but your wife keeps dragging you here, you don't know why and you don't know what is it about this that she's so into, whatever it is, I want you to track with this because what you're gonna hear, I hope in, the, in, in a very clear way is the essence of what the Christian faith is. You're gonna hear an answer, our answer to that question, okay? And if you've already um, become a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, my hope is that over these five weeks, you're gonna rediscover something in your own life and in your own heart. My hope is that through these five weeks, there will be a restoration to the joy of your salvation. Not just a, a, a restoring of the joy of your salvation, but an increase in the joy that you have in God and in your salvation over these weeks. Uh, so I really hope that we're gonna benefit uh, from this. I trust we will. So this morning we're gonna look at that first sola. We are saved by God's grace alone. Martin Luther's journey to God began in uh, the year 1505. In July, he found himself on a path in a field in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm. It was so bad, he thought that he might not survive the storm. In fact, a bolt of lightning came down and struck the ground right beside him. It so terrified him that it threw him to the ground. And in that moment, he had this, 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 this terrible vision of hell. It terrified him. And he cried out, I don't know if you'd say to God. This is what he said. Saint Anne, help me and I will become a monk. I wonder if he regretted making that promise. In other words, if you give me a chance, I'll do better. Give me a second chance. And he made it through the storm and the next week he entered the monastery and he became a monk. And there for years he sought assurance uh, of God's favor and acceptance and love in his life. Later in his life, Luther would write, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. In other words, all the stuff that he did for God, devoted, he devoted his whole life to prayer, to confession, to penance. He went over and above to try to find assurance of God's acceptance. And even at night when it was cold in the monastery, he would choose to sleep without a blanket and he would shiver there to show God how devoted he was. He did everything he could to secure God's favor. Right? How can a person secure God's favor? That's the big question. I know of no place in the Bible that provides a clearer answer than Philippians chapter two. We're gonna hunker down here today and maybe over these next few weeks a little bit. If you have your Bible, please turn there because we're, we're, we're gonna be, um, uh, we're gonna be coming back to that again and again. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, we'll look at verses one through seven today. The first three verses we're gonna look at first and then we'll stop there because um, the first three verses talk about you and they talk about me and where we're at beginning at verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings 
of, the, of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We'll stop there. Boy, those are some hard words. Those are some hard words. Uh, I, I want to summarize what he says about you and us uh, using three words that describe us from these three verses. The first word is dead. I mean, that's the word he uses. Verse one, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. He says what he said to the Romans in Romans chapter three, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Who is dead? He says, you were dead. Who's dead? Who's he referring to? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. We see at the beginning of verse uh, three, all of us, all of us were dead. Okay? He's talking about every single person in the world throughout time. All are in the same boat. He says, all are dead because of sin. Now, what does he mean when he says that all are dead? And he wants us to envision a, uh, a corpse. Okay? But let's, let's just not envision just kind of a lifeless body whose breath has just left it and maybe is still kind of warm to the touch. Maybe there's a chance of resurrection. Maybe we can give CPR. No, I think he wants us to envision dry bones. This is the vision that God gave the prophet Ezekiel back in Ezekiel 37, a, a vision of us, of people. And in the vision, he saw a field strewn with skeletons dry bones. There hadn't been life there for a very long time and life was not coming back. Dry bones. This is what he wants us to envision with this word dead. Now what does he mean when he says we were dead? Well, he's not talking about physical death because they're still there. I don't think he's speaking specifically about like a future death like hell necessarily because they were dead. It was something they were already experiencing. What Paul is saying is that, that they as well as everybody else is alienated from God in their sin, is spiritually dead, completely unable and incapable to respond to God. That's what he means. Completely unable, incapable to respond to God. Paul says we can no more draw near to God in ourselves than a corpse can summon the strength to get up out of the grave. Just can't do it. It cannot respond. There is no life. We are dead. He says it this way in Romans chapter three, verses 10 to 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Saying everybody is dead. Everybody is unable to respond to God. Which leads us to the next word, defiant. We are dead to God. Unable to respond, we are passive, but, but we are alive to something else, he says. If you look in verse two and three, he says, 
you were dead, but you did live, but you lived to something else. You lived for something else. He says, you were dead in your sins, dead to God, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So he says, you were dead to God, but you were very much alive to your sin. You didn't pursue God, you couldn't pursue God, but you, would, you, but, but you pursued your sin. You bristled against God's rule in your life because you loved your sin. He said, it's not that you were just bound, like, oh, sin's got me and oh, I hate this. It's like you found pleasure in those desires, in that life, and some of you know what I'm talking about because you were there. You remember it very clearly gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature. What Paul is saying is that all of us have an inclination away from God, an inclination towards sin. This is what uh, Jesus said. This is how he put it. Hope I don't need that page. This is what, how Jesus put it in, in Mark chapter seven, verse 21. Jesus says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and it's those things on the inside that defile the person. It's not stuff on the outside. It's not like if you could just hide from the world and turn off the TV and move up to that shack in the mountains. There, there you could build a life with God. There you would find relief, there you would escape. He says no, because the problem is within you that your heart is inclined away from God and everyone and inclined towards sin. So in other words, we're not um, sinners because we sin. Do I have this right? We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners because that's our heart. It's dead to God, but it's alive to sin. In this sense, we are, we are he says, Jesus said, we, we are defiled, we are totally corrupted. No part of us is uncorrupted, undefiled, untouched by this presence and the love of sin and the loyalty to sin in our lives, and because of that, we are willing rebels against God and his righteousness and his rule in our lives, we are defiant and can be none other. He says we are dead, we are defiant, and lastly, because of that, we are doomed. This is how he closes. At the end of verse three, he says, like the rest, like everybody else, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You don't hear that word very often, do you? Deserving of wrath. He's not talking about you were deserving of this anger that was within you. He's talking about God's wrath. Because of your deadness and your defiance, you were under God's righteous, righteous judgment. Right? What you had earned for yourself, what you were destined for was destruction, was for hell. And there was no way off that path. 
like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. He would have every right, Paul said, just to, with a flick of his little pinky finger, flick you into hell and dark, whatever that looks like, whatever that is. That would have been God's righteous, righteous judgment. That's the judgment we were all under. We are dead to God. We are defiant of God. We are doomed by God. It doesn't look good for you. Let's pray and go home. What? Wait, there's more. There's more. Thank God there's more. Now these might be the most beautiful words in, the, in, in human history. Now you might expect at this point, after painting this picture of us, that we are dead, defined, and doomed, you might think it would, it would go like this. Therefore, God but it doesn't. The very next words are, but God. That, that, that is the most beautiful but in the world. But God. Okay, bring your mind back to this. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> but God. But God what? Verse four. But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us Alive, but God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God has expressed his kindness, his love, his mercy, his grace through Jesus Christ. Through his death and through his resurrection. And this is how Paul says it back in uh, first Corinth- or, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, the perfectly righteous one. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. For who? The dead, the defiant, and the doomed. The perfect one comes and he takes on all of the wrath that we had earned and he takes it on himself. He becomes sin and he takes our place so that in him, Paul says, we might become the righteousness of God, that we might have the life that Jesus Christ Possessed. Luther called this the justicia alienum, alien righteousness. Some of you Trekkies might get a kick out of that. Ooh, aliens. Alien righteousness, a righteousness that is given to you that does not come from you. It is not your own. It is given to you from the outside, and this is what Luther says. We have been given righteousness through Jesus Christ from God. All has, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he didn't stop there. There was a comma, not a period. He goes on, and all are justified, which means made right with God. All are saved freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All sin, all are dead, all are doomed but all are saved by God's 
grace through Jesus Christ. This is what grace is. Grace gives his favor to the dead, the defiant, and the doomed. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor to those who have forfeited it, have no right to it, but get it anyway. That's grace. That's grace. Sometimes we take God's grace for granted, I think. You know, we live in our, if you watch the news and all the political, everything, it's, everyone's talking about their rights. It's about my right, my right. No one's really talking about responsibility. Everyone's talking about my rights. We live in a world where everybody wants to claim rights. And sometimes we can come to God and think, we have a right to God. I mean, he's God. He forgives. That's what he does. That's what he has to do. No. What, what Paul says is that God is under no obligation whatsoever, whatsoever to give us anything, to give us himself, to accept us, to give us his favor, to give us life. God is under no obligation, but God, but God. Why but God, if that's all the case? But God, because of his great love for us, we're told, being rich in mercy. Why but God instead of therefore God? Why but God? Because God loves you and God desires to be merciful to you. Why? Why does God love you? I have no idea. I have no idea. Why does, and neither does your spouse. Your spouse has no idea. Why does God love you? There isn't an answer for that. There is, there's no reason for the love of God. Love is the reason. Because God is love. But God, not because of a reason, not because of anything that we have done or who we are, but of who he is. He just chooses to give life to the dead, to give forgiveness to the guilty. He has done it all. He has done it all the work to give us life. That... At some point here, I want a few of you to start shouting amen. I mean, I, you guys, for goodness sake, you're a bunch of Baptists. Is there any Pentecostal in this room? Is there a Pentecostal in the room? Will the Pentecostal please identify themselves? At, at some point here, this is good news, okay? This is good news. In your heart, I hope you're at this point, there's a few amens that are bubbling to the surface of your heart, and you're just kind of suppressing them from coming out of your mouth. God has done all the work. You can add nothing to it. Amen. Well, you don't have to all do it at once. I mean, that <laughs> just seems kind of not authentic that way. I just. <laughs> God has done it all because God loves, but. God, this is amazing, this is the good news. Christianity is not about what we do, it's about what has been done for us by God. 
What effect does God's saving grace have in our lives? What effect does it have? It does a few things here. It, it, it makes us exceedingly humble. It makes us exceedingly humble. I've, you know, I, I've heard people say, I've probably seen it on Pinterest, you know, not that I'm into Pinterest, I don't want there to be rumors starting or anything, but you, know, you, you hear the sort of sentiment that God sees in you what nobody else does. That's why he loves you. If others could just see in you what God sees in you, they'd love you too, they'd understand. God sees in you what nobody else does. You know, everyone sees this rough exterior, all the dirt, but he knows under, underneath that is a gem. If he could just clean it and polish it, it would be revealed and it would sparkle. And Paul says, you're crazy. No, no. And it's, and it's it, I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you why that's good. I'm going to tell you why it's good that God doesn't see you, that in you and he's still but God. The truth is that God does see what others don't see. He sees the depth of our deadness. He sees the depth of our defiance. He, he, sees, he sees the depth of our doomedness. I just made up that word. The depth of our doomedness, <laughs> our lostness. He knows that we can bring nothing to the table but our sin. That's what the word alone means. It's not grace and. God does this and I respond with this. And we meet somewhere in the middle. We are saved by God's grace alone. We cannot add a thing to it. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter five at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are utterly poor in spirit who, have not, who possess nothing spiritually, have nothing to offer those are the, them that can enter the kingdom of heaven. It requires utter spiritual poverty and the world is utterly spiritually poor. And when you realize that, there's no room for boasting. That's why Paul says that. He's, a few verses later in verse nine, he says, all of this you're saved by God's works, or by God's grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing to boast of. Everything you are, you are by the grace of God. Completely. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How good the Lord is, what the Lord has done. Because we were just as dead as everyone else. You were just as dead as anyone else. There's no degree of deadness. You're just dead. Nobody's more dead, nobody's less dead. You're just dead. but God. So God's grace in our life, it, 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 it causes us to be humble um, so that there be no boasting, but also so that there be no despair. This is where it gets good. This is where it gets really good. Let there be no boasting, yes, but let there be no despair either. God's grace works in us this great assurance of our standing with God, assurance. Luther, as a priest, for those years, as he was figuring this out, he was tormented, the record tells us, because he, he strived, but he never knew if he had done enough, and he'd spend hours in the confessional, but he'd come out of there, and he'd find his heart sinning again. And he could be overheard in his cell murmuring in the night. 
in, in torment because he lacked any assurance of his standing with God. He never knew if he had done enough. He never knew if the grace he'd received yesterday, if, if he had done something or he might have lost that, and now he needs to recapture that or re-earn that or whatever. I wonder if you know what that's like. Do you know what that's like? Some spiritual despairing in your life? My guess is you know. Because I know. And my wife knows. I live with her. I do. You know. I, because, I, because I have people from here that come into my office pretty frequently talking about the feeling of despair, wondering where they stand with God. As if God is, as, as if it's kind of like, and I, I think of the analogy of, of, of the Winnipeg Jets because it's always going to come back to the Winnipeg Jets, Right? You know, that, that maybe we're like a prospect that God sees and he sees some potential in it and he goes, God goes, I want that person on my team. And so God signs that person and that person joins God's team. But like that hockey player, he's been signed and he belongs to the team, but now he better perform. There's the pressure to keep your place, to earn the price that had been paid for you. And if for whatever reason, you've got, a, you've got a goalless drought for a period of time. There's that fear and there's that anxiety that if you don't perform to a certain level, you could get cut just as quickly as you were signed. And the truth of God's grace, that we are saved by God's grace alone, says no. No. You never earned it in the first place, so you can't unearn it. You didn't deserve it, so you can't undeserve it. You didn't choose it, so you can't lose it. When Luther discovered this most important, profound of truth, he found finally the peace he had been longing for that drove the despair out of his life. Wondering where I stood with God, if I'd done enough, if I'd stepped out of his favor, if I was still acceptable to him, Paul uh, or Luther would, would later write this. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this. Duh. <laughs> Luther didn't say duh, actually. <laughs> I deviated from the quote. <laughs> but I summarize it with that profound word. <laughs> Duh. And? This is what Luther said. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Which is his way of saying, duh. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Right? It's never been because of you. So why would it start becoming because of you? It's always been but God. And it always will be but God. 
what he has done and who he is. And so Paul said it is by, twice he says in these verses, it is by grace you, you have been saved. Past tense. It's not by grace you're being saved. I hope you get there. It's by grace you'll be saved if you keep on this path. It's by grace you have been saved. Past tense, done. That's grace. And that grace gives us this incredible assurance that drives out despair, that drives out anxiety, that brings this deep peace and joy to our lives, knowing that we have the favor of God simply because of God. And yet, little caveat here, and yet, while God's grace is freely given to all, not all receive it. While we are saved by God's grace alone, not all are saved. Not all the dead are made alive. I mean, this is what Paul says. If you look at these verses here, he says, you were dead. You used to live like these other people in whom the Spirit is now at work, those who are disobedient. You used to be like them. You're not like them anymore. You're not dead anymore. You're alive because of God's grace. They're still dead people. God's grace is freely given to all, but, but how do you receive that grace into your life? God's grace is kind of, I picture it like the sun shining on the world, on the whole world, and nobody earns the sun. You don't earn the rays from the sun. You don't earn the suntan you get when you stand in the sun. You don't work for it. You just receive it, right? God's grace is like that. It's there for the whole world, for all to receive freely. You cannot earn it, you can only receive it, but not all receive the rays of the sun. You have, to, you have to step out into the sun. You have to step out from undercover out into the sun to receive the freely given grace of God that, that, that takes you from dead to alive. How is it that we receive God's grace into our lives? That's the next question. How is it that we receive God's grace into our lives and are made alive to God? And that's next week's message. That's the next sola we're gonna look at. But this morning, let us just rest on this incredible truth. Salvation comes by God's grace alone. You were dead, you were defiant, you were doomed. But God, but God has done it all to make you alive, but God has loved you and has been rich in mercy, and I find great comfort in that, and I hope that you can come away from here and that you can come away with the, the comfort that comes with that truth, that you can rest assured as Luther was able to because he discovered this. Salvation is a free gift of God's to us that we cannot earn. We cannot earn. We can only receive. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to add. Let me close with these words, backing up a little bit into Ephesians chapter one, just because I love these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, we didn't choose him, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship into his family through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I hope that hearing that, it just stirs within your heart a, a, a desire to praise God, to praise God. Um, and that's how we want to end this. We, 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 we want to end by, after hearing all of this, to uh, just to offer our praise to God for his freely given grace. And so as the team comes up here, they're going to lead us in this one last uh, song where we have opportunity together to praise God. Uh, but I, um, as they come up, I do want to close in prayer here. So would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words. Lord, that while we were dead and defiant and doomed, but God, we thank you for those beautiful words, Lord, that for whatever reason, because you loved us, because you are rich in mercy, You freely bestowed the gift of life onto those of us who were dead, which is all of us. That we just thank you that we can just receive that, Lord, that we don't have to be in a place where we have to earn it, where we have to maintain it, to secure it. We can just receive it and we can enjoy it. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give to each one of us who have received your grace, Father. And, and, and as we think of that, I just pray that you would... Uh, just give us this deep comfort and deep assurance that will give peace to our souls. You are good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.